two weeks from this upcoming Monday will be the 246th anniversary of an event that has been a central one in American history. You may have learned about it in your history classes. It is called the shot heard round the world. April 19th, 1775, the British are advancing in the American colonies. They have heard that there is a cache of weapons that they don't want the American colonists to have. They are going to seize it around Lexington. The American militia gets word and they take away that weapons. They hide them so the British don't find them. There's a skirmish at Lexington in Massachusetts. And then the army of Great Britain, the most powerful army in all the world, begins advancing on Concord, Massachusetts. Just a couple years ago, Tabitha and I went along this freedom trail and came to that very site where nearly 246 years ago, the most formidable army in the world stood on one side of Old North Bridge, a wooden bridge over a little stream in Concord, Massachusetts. On the other side, a ragtag group of farmers and militiamen. And in that conflict, in that meeting, a shot was fired. It was the first shot in which the American army, then just a militia, fired under orders on British troops. And it is called to this day the shot heard round the world. Now, why do you think it's called the shot heard round the world? That doesn't literally mean that all across the world the sound of that gunfire was heard. It was that the event was so important, so cataclysmic, that it would have a ripple effect across the entire world. There are other events like that through our history. Some of you remember the morning of September 11, 2001. You remember what you were doing. On September 11, 2001, I certainly do. You remember where you were when you first heard the news that the world had changed forever. And as you watched that event, you said, life has changed. Life has changed, and it has. We could go across history to see these kinds of events that shake the world to their very foundation. And I think that word shake is important. Because we read in Matthew 28 that about 2,000 years ago, one morning, one Sunday morning, there was an earthquake. A real physical earthquake that shook the world. But more importantly, there was an earthquake not just physical, there was an earthquake moral and spiritual that truly has been and will be heard around the world. This is not the shot heard around the world, this is the shaking that was felt around the world. What I want to suggest to you today is simply that by looking at Matthew 28, at this earthquake, not just physical, not just in our geology, but in every part of our lives, this earthquake is intended to be felt across the world now and forever. It is the central 
climactic event in all of human history when the forces of death were defied and Jesus of Nazareth rose physically and bodily from the dead. It was an earthquake. My question for you today is, what does this earthquake mean for you and for me? What are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? And when we look at Matthew 28, we see three different groups of people confronted with the implications that Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead. They had different responses they had different reactions to the claim that was made by Jesus Christ in his resurrection. And they are reactions that maybe all of us are experiencing in different ways today. The title of our message this morning is simply The Implications of the Resurrection. The Implications of the Resurrection. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for you, for me, and for the world? First of all, I want us to understand an implication about the person of the resurrection. The person of the resurrection. Won't you join me, if you have your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 28 and try to put yourself in the place of this first group that we're going to look at here. It is the group of the women. Now, we might find it odd that the gospel writers would put the initial testimony of Jesus Christ in the mouth of women. If you were constructing or creating or concocting a story of resurrection, you certainly would not have put it in the mouth of these women from Galilee who were certainly disrespected by where they came from, and not only that, simply by their gender. It has been remarked that in Jewish times, women were not expected to be in places like courtrooms. It was not to be characteristic of their sex. In fact, sometimes there may have even been a prejudice, just an, an outright prejudice against women giving testimony in a court of law. What a strange thing it would be if you decided to make up a story of the resurrection that you have said, I know who will be seen as credible. This group of ragtag women followers of Christ, like the rest of the disciples were, from the sticks, not from a place of importance or presumed reliability. And yet there we have it. These women were the first witnesses. They come to the tomb where Jesus has been buried early in the morning. Their goal is simply to give respect to his dead body, almost as if we would at a funeral, putting flowers on the grave or on the casket itself. And notice what happens when they get there. Verse 2 says, There was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. The, the tomb was carved out of a cave and there was a big stone rolled in front of it to protect animals from coming in and defiling the body or grave robbers coming in and stripping what was valuable from this tomb. This big stone was rolled away. An angel sitting upon it, his countenance was like lightning and his raiment was white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. You say, who are these keepers? They were the assigned Roman soldiers to protect against Jesus being stolen from his grave. Now they are cast aside in fear. Jesus has been resurrected. He is gone 
And the angel, verse 5, answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. The stone was not rolled away from the tomb to allow Jesus out. The stone was rolled away from the tomb to allow witnesses in. And they said, come and see, he is not here And then he says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. Now look at verse 8 with me. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher, from that tomb, with fear and great joy. I want you to think about those emotions on that first resurrection morning. The emotion of fear, we don't often think about that in the testimony of these women, but wouldn't you be afraid? You would have been so startled, so shaken that what everything you were expecting that morning to go and mourn and properly pay respects to a dead body, suddenly you see an angelic visitor and suddenly they tell you news that the one you love is not dead, he's not there, you've seen it with your own eyes. What do you think? I wonder if part of their fear was this. This seems too good to be true. Have you ever had that feeling before, that kind of fear that something good happens to you and you say, it's like I'm in a, it's like I'm in a dream. I don't pinch me. I, I might wake up. I, 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 is this actually reality? I suspect some of these women, these, these, this, this fear was simply this I don't know that I can believe it. But notice also it says they had fear and great joy. That with the fear came this incredible sense that it may be too good to be true, but it may not. It probably is true. The one that we have loved and followed may indeed be alive. So see this reaction to the possibility of the resurrection. Fear, I don't know if I can believe it, and great joy. But if I can, what a wonderful transformative thing it is. We can probably identify with that feeling that they have. But then notice what happens next. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail. That word literally means rejoice. It's like he said, be of good cheer. Cheer up. Rejoice. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. I want you to think about that for a moment. Why did Jesus show up? And confront these women on the road as they were going? What was the angel's command to those women? What did he tell them to do? Go and do what? Tell the disciples. Is that what they were going to do? Yes. They were following the commands. They were doing exactly what God had told them to do through the angel. So why did Jesus show up? Because friends, they needed to move from the possibility of the resurrection to the person of the resurrection. 
They needed to move from their ideas being, can this be true? This must be true. Fear and great joy. And they needed to move to worship. Notice what happens. They fell down. They held him by his feet as one they loved and adored. And they worshiped the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, what is Easter all about? It is about the worship of a person. Do not miss this. There may be some of you here today who know a little bit of fear when it comes to the resurrection. You say, I don't know that I can believe that. It seems too good to be true. I don't know that I I can come into the reality of that historical fact. Jesus says, you need to meet me as a person. You need to move beyond the possibility of the resurrection and to the worship of a living historical being who is alive and is coming back. There may be some who are focused on the great joy of the resurrection and what it means for us. Jesus did physically, bodily rise from the dead. And yet the concept of worship today has gone past you. You're willing to look at the possibility of an empty tomb and even rejoice over it. But not to bow at the feet of Jesus and hold him by the feet and say, Jesus, I love you. I worship you because you are alive. Don't miss this, friends. If you come to this Easter service today and you sing these glorious hymns and you listen to the story of Jesus's resurrection and you say, that's great, but it never causes you to bow in your heart and, and, and worship a living person. You and I have missed the purpose of the resurrection. It's about worship. So notice this implication Jesus is coming to these women because they need to be moved to worship and you and I need to be moved to the same as we confront the possibility of his resurrection and indeed the reality of it. But I want us to see secondly, not only is there the implication for the person of this resurrection, one we must worship, but also that gives way very quickly to a problem of the resurrection. Because we move from one group of people, the women, who testified that he truly was risen and moved to worship to a second group. Will you look with me at verse number 11? Now, when they were going, these are these women who are now going with renewed vigor and love to tell the disciples Behold, some of the watch, some of those Roman soldiers came into the city and showed unto the chief priest, all, priests all the things that were done. Now put yourself in the chief priest's shoes. What are you doing? What are you thinking? As these keepers, as these Roman soldiers who are trustworthy men, who are battle-hardened people, come to you and say, yes, we guarded it exactly like you told us to. We made it as sure as we could, as as Matthew 27 tells us. But then there was an earthquake and we saw an angel, some, some being we've never laid eyes on in the past. And we were so terrified, we simply couldn't do anything. And then the stone got rolled away from the front. And then we could see with our own eyes that there wasn't a dead body in there. What are we going to do now? Now notice, why is this a problem? Notice how the chief priest responded. Verse 12 says, And when they were assembled with the elders or the leaders of the people and had taken counsel, they they had a quick impromptu meeting. They gave large money unto the soldiers. They paid them off. They bribed them. 
saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, the governor of the Roman soldiers, we will persuade him and secure you. You're not going to have to be afraid. We'll pay you a lot of money. And if the Roman governor hears about it, we've got your back. You're not going to die. You're not going to be punished. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Friends, the chief priests had done everything they could to prevent exactly this occurrence. And now it had happened. And what was their response? Deception. Deceit. Rebellion. Why did the chief priests respond this way? Wouldn't you have thought that if they had truly been convinced that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, they would have been the first ones going to him to say, hey, if if this guy's got this power, if God truly has sent him, we need to get aligned with Jesus of Nazareth. No, why not? Because they knew exactly what the implication of the resurrection was. It was not ignorance that led the chief priest to this action. It was the full recognition that the, that the resurrection meant that everything about their life had to change. Who were these people? They were the people of power. They were the people of privilege. They were the people of prestige. They were the people of influence. And they knew without a doubt, just as they knew in his life, that if Jesus were accepted to be the Messiah, their position was gone. They knew their influence would not be what it was. They would not be the celebrated ones anymore like they once were. And simply when it came down to this choice of acknowledging the implications of a risen Jesus or maintaining their own privilege, their own prestige, the answer, unfortunately, was too easy. They knew that everything would change if the resurrection was found to be true, and they couldn't stomach that fact. You know, friends, I appreciate this about the chief priests. I appreciate their honesty. I appreciate the fact that they understood truly what the implications of the resurrection were. They understood that if Jesus were resurrected from the dead, do you know what that meant? He was Lord. He was boss. He was God. He needed to be obeyed. And they said, That's not for us. You see, friends, I fear today that in our world of this moral relativism that simply says you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe and we'll just go along with the rest of our lives like that. We simply are failing to take into account the implications of the resurrection because the resurrection is based on a historical claim. It's either true or it's not. Jesus either physically rose from the dead or he didn't. And when our society wants to tell us, go ahead and believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's fine with us. No skin off our backs, but don't live like it. And don't suggest that I should live like it. They are missing what the chief priests fully understood. That if Jesus truly, historically, bodily rose from the dead, then everything changes. And if he didn't, then why are we here? It comes down to that central implication of the gospel. And my challenge to all of us this morning is you and I can live in ways even in which we've mentally assent to the truth of the resurrection. We say, sure, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
And yet we're utterly blind to therefore what it means. What is the implication of resurrection? Worship Jesus. Obey him. Give your life to him. If he rose from the dead, then he's unlike any other moral teacher who has ever lived. He is unlike any other religious figure who has ever lived. There's no empty tomb in any other religion. He is to be worshipped. That's the point. And what disregard we hold for the central truth or falsity of that claim when we simply say, I don't even need to think about it. Let's not, let's not, let's not opt out like that. Let's not try to co-op that central question. Do I believe that Jesus was born, was, 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 uh, was resurrected physically and bodily? And if the answer is yes, it changes everything. And if the answer is no, then why are we still pretending? I do appreciate the chief priest's honesty. Though it was led to rejection and rebellion, at least they understood the implications of what the resurrection meant for them. Third, not only do we see the person of the resurrection, not only do we see this problem of the resurrection, this implication that we have to deal with, thirdly, we see a priority of the resurrection. Jesus not only appears to these women, who else does he appear to? Notice verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. What was the point of resurrection? Worship. But some doubted. Even after seeing the risen Savior, some still doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore... And teach, literally make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's what we saw this morning. Baptizing them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. To be obedient followers. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. See, I want us to think about this implication of resurrection. Jesus comes to the women so that they will worship him, so that they will move from the possibility of resurrection to the person of the resurrection. Now Jesus comes to his disciples, not only so that they will worship him, but so that they will do what? What is the priority of the resurrection? Go and tell others. Go and call others to worship the risen Jesus. Go and call others to be his disciples. Go and call others to obey him and follow him. Why? Because all power, literally all authority, has been given to him. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. How would you go about it if you were intending to go tell people to spread the good news that you had risen from the dead? Would you call the women from Galilee? Would you call the fishermen and the other middle class or lower middle class people from the backwaters of Galilee and of Nazareth to be the ones who were your messengers? Notice again what's happening here. The powerful and the privileged, the prestigious have rejected. They are sending the news that Jesus did not rise. He was stolen. Who are the ones who nonetheless are told to go? Those whose hearts are bowed in worship to the risen Savior. Friends, do you know we can come into the same kind of fear today that I wonder if these disciples ever were tempted toward? 
it came out just within the last week or so, a study in Gallup, the Gallup poll, that showed that church membership in America has dipped below 50% for the first time in record, in, as they have on record. Less than 50% of Americans now belong to a church, a synagogue, a mosque. As early as, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago, it was 70%. And some have bemoaned this decline. They've said, what are we going to do? The foundations of our society, of our shared kind of belief system are going away. But here's the point. That's how it's always been. Those who have much to lose from the gospel in terms of power and prestige and influence often are the ones who are going to reject it because they know its implications. I don't want to follow Jesus. Who are the ones who are willing to follow? Who are the ones who are willing to recognize the implications of the resurrection and say, I'm in? Those who are willing to humble themselves. Why do you think Jesus said in a passage sometimes we overlook in this richest society that has ever been in existence? Jesus said it is easier to go for a camel to go through the little tiny eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to go to heaven. Because those who are rich have so much to lose when it comes to giving themselves in worship to Jesus and in obedience to him. Why do you think it was that Paul looked at the church at Corinth and says in 1 Corinthians 1, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Why? Because God delights in taking what man despises. And bringing it up for his purposes. Those who will worship him humbly, give themselves to him, are used as instruments in his hand. Jesus says, unless you humble yourself like a little child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's because the worship that resurrection requires is a humble worship that says, I am not clinging to what I feel I have to lose. I have nothing to lose and everything to gain in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, what about you this morning? Do you understand the certainty that this gospel will be rejected wherever it goes? Particularly by those who feel they have much to lose, who do not wish to sit under the implications of what the resurrection of Jesus means for them. You see what Jesus is saying clearly to them as he is saying to us is go anyway. Go and tell anyway whether or not it's rejected, whether or not the powerful and the prestigious, the elite of your society accept it. You go. Why? Because all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Those who are powerful and prestigious don't hold ultimate authority. Those who reject the message of the resurrection because of its implications do not hold the final card. They don't hold the final say. The one who holds all authority and all power does. Paul, 
when he got up before some very prestigious, important people in his day in Athens, the intellectual center of Europe at the time, uh, 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 of the Roman Empire at the time, he said these words, God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Now listen to this. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. The stamp of approval that God has given on Jesus Christ as the judge of all men is the historical fact that he was raised from the dead. And the implication of that historical fact is that we need to move from simply the possibility of resurrection to the worship of the person himself, Jesus of Nazareth. Friends, don't miss the implications of resurrection this morning. Don't miss them either because you don't want to wrestle with them, because you know how much it feels like you have to lose. Don't miss the implications in all the celebration and hubbub of Easter today if your heart doesn't bow before Jesus Christ and love him and adore him for who he is and what he has done. And most importantly, I pray for each one of you here and each one within the sound of my voice that you would not miss the central implication that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is king. One day his kingdom will be seen by all. And the only proper response to that central implication is to give yourself wholeheartedly to him in repentance and in faith that places your eternal destiny entirely in his hands and worships him in obedience for the rest of your life. Yes, friends, this is an implication. This was a shaking that has been heard throughout the world and will continue to be heard. May we not miss that message this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this resurrection. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. We look at the empty tomb. We see the testimony that has been given across the ages. Those who are willing to die for what they saw. And our intellect, our mind is convinced. It is persuaded that Jesus rose from the dead. That this is true. That he is alive today. Father, may we not miss the implications of that truth If Jesus is risen from the dead, that means he is to be worshipped and loved and obeyed. I pray, Father, that throughout this room and wherever this is being heard, that people would bow in the worship of Jesus, the Christ, today. Let's pause for a moment. However, God is speaking to you by his spirit today. Would you listen? Would you worship him? And if even one of you here today would say, I don't know whether I've ever accepted Jesus. I don't know whether I've ever given myself to him. I don't know whether I've repented of my sins or trusted in him for my eternal destiny. We'd love to share a little bit more with you about that today, what that means, how you can become a Christian. If that's you today, I'd invite you just to slip your hand up and down.
I'll see it and I'll be able to have a little conversation about the implications of this wonderful truth. Is there anyone who say, I want to learn a little bit more about what it is to follow Jesus? All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Father, we worship the risen Christ. We know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, may each of our knees bow. May each of our tongues confess right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.